Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Jonah chapter 3. We are also going to be uh, in Amos just a little bit. Amos is just a couple books uh, over to your left. And uh, Amos chapter 2, but uh, mostly we'll be in Jonah chapter 3. And I have some slides uh, that have some verses on it as well, but we'll just kind of dig in. Uh, Jonah chapter 3, we've been looking at the book of Jonah here now for uh, four weeks, and uh, God calls Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it in chapter 1. Jonah doesn't want to do that, so he goes the opposite direction out into the middle of nowhere trying to avoid God's mission. God sends a great storm on the ship that Jonah is on, And it is determined that Jonah is the cause of that, so they ultimately throw him overboard. There's a contrast there in that first chapter, is that these pagan sailors end up acting more righteously than the prophet Jonah. Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea. He is swallowed by a great fish. And in this fish, he has a moment of change of heart. I'm not quite ready to call it repentance. The word repentance is not used in chapter two. Jonah is thankful that God rescues him. He is committed to doing better in obeying. And so after three days, the fish vomits him out on the shore and God's call to Jonah comes again for him to go to Nineveh. Now, what happens in chapter three, how you interpret chapter three is really dependent on your view of Jonah. Um, If you see Jonah uh, as being uh, still fighting with God, not wanting to go to Nineveh, then you can look at chapter three and his message and you can say, he's trying to sabotage the whole thing. If you see Jonah as repentant, then you might see chapter three as being much more of God blessing Jonah's preaching. Um, In fact, over the years, um, there have been different uh, artworks that have been done describing and picturing Jonah. Um, And he's been pictured as a saint uh, coming out of the fish with a fully written script of his uh, chapter two. Uh, He's often pictured with his hands raised in... uh, in just giving himself over to the Lord. Uh, There's this beautiful stained glass. Jonah is just walking right out of the the fish's mouth. Pretty incredible. Um, And pretty, he just seems pretty determined, like he's going to go do uh, what he is called to do. Same with this marble sculpture. Jonah is just committed. He looks young and fresh after three days in the fish. And so again, how you interpret chapter three is kind of dependent on how you view Jonah. And uh, it's no surprise to you if you've been watching, watching this, if you've been following along, that I, I'm a little suspicious of Jonah here. Um, in chapter 4, he clearly says to God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to show mercy. And so Jonah is faced with this, this problem of, of not loving the mission that God has given him. Uh, in addition, as I thought about chapter 3 this week, I thought of Jesus' words. And Jesus said, uh, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the son of man. And uh, that's brought up a lot of interesting thoughts in the sense that chapter three is a kind of or example of, or it leads 
people to think of the death, burial of Jesus Christ. It's a kind of resurrection here. Jonah has new life, um, but he doesn't have a new heart. With the resurrection, we have new life, but we also have a new heart. And as I studied this week, I was just overwhelmed with the the thought of this heart issue that's in Jonah chapter 3. And as I was wrestling with what I was going to say early this week, I was sitting down with one of my kids out on the deck, uh, and we were talking about all the political stuff that's going on in our world today. And my daughter and uh, her significant other were talking, and and they said, you know, uh, they just called out some of the hypocrisy that they see in the church, large C, uh, specifically with the older generation. And I said, oh, okay, I can see that. And I, I then turned the, the tides a little bit. I said, but here's some things the younger generation will do. And we had a, a very good talk. But what's very clear is that it sure is easier to see the sin of other people than it is to see the sin of ourselves. It's easier to see the sins on the other side of the aisle, not just of the church, but politically, It's easier to see the sins of other generations. It's easier to see the sins of other families. And so as I thought about that, we came into our reading this week in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, judge not that you may be, uh, judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, you will will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? And so I think that Jonah sees the sin of Nineveh, clearly. What he doesn't see is the sin of Israel and his own sin. And that's true of us. So kids, on your activity sheet, uh, just kind of zooming in here, um, we have uh, talked about already that you can't run from God and that you can't ignore your neighbor, chapter one. Chapter two, learning to die to self and learning how not to pray And then chapter three, what we're going to look at today is remove the log in your own eye. So this is a a phrase that Jesus used. I just read it. And it means this. If you're looking at somebody else, and let's just say they had a speck of dust in their eye. And and you're going, ooh, that that looks like it's irritating you. You should get that out and maybe put a little water in that or a little, you know, what, what, what would help with that? Maybe you need to go to the doctor. But at the same time, you have a log coming out of the side of your head. Okay, well, that would be silly. And Jesus is using this, we call it hyperbole, to make a point. That sometimes we see problems in other people that we don't see glaring problems in ourselves. And that is true of Jonah. And so I just want to read the first uh, five verses, and then we'll dig in here. We'll look at this text again next week. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, against it the message that I tell you. Verse 2 is slightly different uh, than the call in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the words are slightly different. Some commentators make a big deal out of it. I don't think we need to make a big deal out of it. God has already said, you're going to go preach against it, and so he's going to give him that message. And it seems that message got, got, he got some sort of message from God because Jonah is specific with the time frame when he gets there. 
So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Now let me just say that I think this is exaggeration, okay? An average person can walk 20 to 30 miles a day. Uh, You could walk across the length of New York in a day, okay? So this being three days length, it's it's a big city. It's important. There's a lot of stuff in it. And so uh, Jonah, verse 4, began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And one of the probably worst sermons ever recorded in Scripture one of the greatest revivals ever recorded in scripture. Jonah's sermon is five words in the Hebrew, eight in our English Bibles. Okay, when I used to be in Sunday school, sometimes the teachers would tell us to memorize a verse. Uh, This, you could, oh, teacher, I'll do better than that. I'll memorize a whole sermon and come back with this, right? And, And it'd been easy. So here we have this just really poor sermon and this great revival. Now, something, again, how you interpret chapter three is how you look at Jonah. And I would say this, there is a kind of change of heart, but it's not the kind of heart that we need. So the main idea today is just easier to see the sins of others And so how do we move beyond that? The problem is that we have a blind heart. What we need is a resurrected heart. And a resurrected heart turns into a transformed heart. So first, uh, we just recognize that, that our hearts are blind. And that's why Jesus can say those words that I read in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you will be measured. Now, let me just stop there for a second. And let me just say this. Sometimes people want to accuse God of being unfair. And they would say, you know, what about this person? And what about that person? And what if they don't know all the rules and all this kind of stuff? And and, uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators just pointed out, uh, it was Timothy Keller, but he was quoting somebody else. I can't remember who he was quoting. But you get to heaven, you know, and you're standing before God. And this person calls, unfair, unfair. God says, okay. And he reveals something. What if every one of us had a hidden tape recorder that went around our necks? And that recorder recorded everything for your lifetime. And then Jesus says, okay, I will just judge you according to the way that you've judged other people. That's it. None of my rules, just your rules. Here's how you responded when somebody cut you off. Here's how you responded when somebody hurt your feelings. Here's how you responded when somebody lied to you. And just by that alone, I think most of us would say, I stand guilty before God. And so... God says, look, don't judge. I can judge you according to your own standards. And he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log 
that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, you know, let me help you take that out unless you remove your log. And so we have to recognize each one of us that our heart is blind to some of our own sin. Here's the reality. We show much more grace to ourselves oftentimes than we do to other people. And so what, what we need to recognize as we are posting that post on Facebook, as we are judging that person for the way that they're operating during this pandemic, as we're looking at that side of the aisle or this side of the aisle, Republican, Democrat, whatever, whatever that is, can we just remember that we are blinded to some of our own faults. And this is made so clear to me in the fact that Jonah is called to go preach to Nineveh. Now let me just, a little background on Jonah again, just as a reminder, Jonah is a prophet in the north. Israel and Judah have split off. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel has not had one good king. Jeroboam II calls for a prophet. Jonah comes and says, God is gonna bless you. Amos comes and says, no, he's not. You're going to be judged. Now, you can give Jonah a, a break for that. Maybe God changed his mind and saw Jonah, uh, uh, Jeroboam's actions and changed. Sometimes prophets have gone back to the, to the king or the person and said, now God's going to do this. But usually he sends the same prophet. Here he had to send another prophet. And not only that, but God sends Jonah to Nineveh, but he sends Amos who was not a prophet from the north. In fact, he wasn't even a prophet before this. He was just a fig farmer. And God says, I need you to go up and preach against Israel. And Amos does that. And so if you flip over just a few um, pages, in Amos chapter two, now Amos was a great, uh, is a great book. We actually went through it here uh, a while ago. And Amos does this great thing where he he circles around in his judgment. He says, here's how God's going to judge these people. Here's how God's going to judge these people. You can almost imagine the people going, yeah, yeah. In fact, he even says, here's how God's going to judge. This is what uh, your, your brothers and sisters to the south are guilty for. They're like, yeah. And then, and then he digs into Israel. And in chapter two, verse six, he says, thus says the Lord. He has this repeated phrase, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the, revoke the punishment. Because, and here's what, here's what Israel is guilty of. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Ammonites, <coughs> excuse me, whose height was like the height of cedars and whose was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt um, and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of you, your young men uh, for Nazarites. It is not indeed so, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? So let's just kind of review a little bit the sins of Israel because Jonah seems blinded to it. Nineveh, bad. Israel, we're God's people. 
But let's just reminding, and Amos and Jonah are contemporaries. This is what's happening in Israel while Jonah is preaching against the Ninevites. First of all, they're denying justice to the righteous, verse 2. They're denying justice to the righteous um, because they sell the righteous for silver. And then denying justice to the poor, the needy for a pair of sandals. Again, probably hyperbole. They're selling people for what a pair of sandals would cost. There's, there's, uh, they're denying justice to the poor. They're, they are, um, there's sexual immorality. Basically, he just calls out here that uh, father and son are, are having sexual relations with the same girl. And that's very clearly uh, spoken against in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And God's just saying, what is going on over there? So they're, they're denying justice to the righteous. They're denying justice to the poor. There's sexual immorality. Uh, they're stealing from the poor. Now, you have to know a little Old Testament, and you have to understand a little of the poetry in chapter 2. But it says in uh, verse 8, they lay themselves down before every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now, in those days, if a poor person needed a loan, you know, to get something to eat, and he was going to go work it off that day, he would give as a pledge his outer garment. Now, that outer garment not just served as, as clothes, but it also served as kind of the bed you slept in if you were poor. That was your house. And so the rule was you could take a, an outer garment as a pledge, but you had to give it back to the poor person at the end of the day because they didn't have anything to sleep in. And so these pledges have been taken, and what are they doing? They're laying themselves beside the altar uh, using these as blankets, these pledges. And so they're stealing from the poor. They're taking from them and using even what the poor has. Uh, there's spiritual ad adultery there, laying yourself before every altar. In other words, they're worshiping other gods. And then it, it's kind of hard to see here, but, but you need to just kind of, again, know the Old Testament a little bit and understand uh, the language. He says... Um, it says, lay themselves down before every altar. And it says, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They, they, they are not just stealing from the poor, and there's not just the spiritual adultery, but they're getting rich off those who are poor or have been punished. And so somebody is fined. They've done something wrong, and they're fined. Okay, we're talking about the legal system now. And... The rich are getting rich off those fines. They're buying wine and enjoying the, the fruits of these fines. It's not going back into any kind of justice system. They're, they're misusing this. One of the things that's just happened in all the stuff that's been going on in our country is uh, it's been uh, educational to watch some documentaries. And I've watched a, a few. Uh, Just Mercy is a great one. If you haven't seen that on Netflix, I really encourage you to do that. Another one that we watched was called The 13th. And uh, it is also on Netflix. Uh, I haven't watched the whole thing. My, I caught the last half of it with my wife, and I started watching the first half of it. But it's just interesting when, uh, when we have uh, people freed from slavery, what ended up happening is our justice system began quickly arresting people of color at a very high rate. 
And our justice system turned into a for-profit and using those who were arrested. And uh, it's very just educational in the fact of things that I didn't know of who was making money off our justice system. And here it is right in Amos. I, I never thought of that, but he says they're, they're drinking the wine off those who have been fined. And so we need to think about those things. And, and then finally, he talks about all this stuff, and it was kind of confusing maybe there as I was reading it, verses 9 and 10. But he is talking about the things that he has done in the past. And he's accusing Israel of forgetting the works of God. Have you forgotten who delivered you out of Egypt, who destroyed all these different things? And so look, we start with this idea of we have, a, we have something in our eye, we don't even have to call it a log, and there's something in somebody else's eye. And what the church and Christians and people who claim to be followers of Jesus love to do is cover their eye and go, look over there, look over there, look at this, look at this. And the world is like going, can you move your hand for a second? I'm having trouble seeing something. And we have to recognize that even as followers of Jesus, we can have a blinded heart. So something happens to Jonah. He comes out of the belly of this fish. He recognizes that God saved him. He writes this beautiful poetry in chapter two of Jonah. And then he heads out on this mission. He has a new life, but I question whether he has a new heart. And church, let's just put the mirror on us. Do we have a new heart? The problem is we have a blinded heart. What we need is a resurrected heart. And let's just think about the resurrection for a moment. What does the resurrection bring to us? absolutely brings new life. When we follow Jesus Christ, we have a new life. And not just a life for today, but eternal life. And hopefully that brings new behaviors. It did in Jonah's life. Okay, he says, I'm going to obey you now. So at least to some point, he is going to Nineveh. We can give him credit for that. He has new behaviors. But when Nineveh repents, And it says in verse 16, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We're going to see in the next few verses that the king does it and the cows do it. I mean, there is a revival going on in Nineveh. Again, just like in chapter one, the pagans do better than the prophets. New life, new behaviors, what we all need is a new heart. You know, that's actually one of the main storylines of the Bible. In fact, when we get to the end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his send-off farewell sermon. I just read it just this last week, and and. And Moses goes into all these things. Hey, if you obey God, this is what will happen. If you disobey God, this is what will happen. And he gets to the end of it, and he goes, by the way, you're going to disobey. You're going to blow it. And Jeremiah tells us what we need is, what God needs to give us is this new heart. And so what we're not, we're just not looking for this thing where we just work real hard and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're coming before God going, look, my heart is broken, and what I need is a new one. We need a new heart. 
And when we experience the resurrection, we actually experience new relationships. When when Adam and Eve fall, their relationship with God is broken. That is very clear. But we can also see that their relationship with the earth, the actual physical world is broken. There's thorns and hard work and sweat and labor pains. Their relationship with each other is broken. We have the very first, they made, he made me do it, she made me do it, the devil made me do it. Their relationship with each other is broken. And here's the thing, unless we have a new heart, those relationships aren't going to be changed. In fact, I, you can even say their relationship with themselves was broken. Shame enters in. When God gives us a new heart, our relationship with God, absolutely. That is in the process of being healed. It is healed by the blood of Jesus. But we're also working in in fixing the relationships with other people and the relationships with the world that we live in and the relationship with ourselves. So we have new relationships. And when, when the fish vomits Jonah, you know what he gets? He gets a new mission. We see this in Jonah. He has a new life. He has a new behavior. I'm questioning whether he has a new heart. He certainly doesn't want any relationships with Nineveh, but he does have a new mission. It's the same mission he had before. And we'll see that in our lives, when we come to Christ, we have a new mission. So we have a broken heart and a blinded heart, and that shows us our need. What we need is a resurrected heart. Where does a resurrected heart come from? It only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes through him. And church, you know, as I've been reading uh, scripture and studying it over the years and, and going to church and being a part of church and sitting under other people's teaching, I think that we have focused too much. Now, hear me out. We have focused too much on our sinful heart and we haven't talked enough about our new heart. I think we can all come to grips with the fact that we have a broken heart, that we have a blinded heart, that our heart is sinful. What we don't lean into enough is the fact that you have a new heart as a follower of Jesus. You have a new spirit within you. And that is a wonderful thing. So a resurrected heart leads to a transformed heart. Um, Why do we have trouble with this? Can we just admit Some of you don't want to admit it. You think it's not you, but change is hard. In fact, I would argue that that really major change doesn't happen apart from God. I mean, I know some people, you know, they've lost weight or they've kicked a habit or, or, you know, uh, grew up in a bad family and and kind of, you know, worked hard to create a better family. But it's just amazing how much of that stuff just kind of peaks an ugly head from time to time. You know, we just change is hard. And the reality is what we see in Jonah is I don't even think he wants to change. He doesn't want anything different. He doesn't want God's mercy with with Nineveh. And oftentimes when people is like, man, we want the church to grow. We want this to happen. We want all the, but don't change anything. We want change in our life. And I want to, you know, you want to work out more, you want to eat better, you want to drink less, whatever it is, and you, until you actually have to do it. 
So why do we need a transformed heart? First of all, there on your notes, it's the goal of salvation. A transformed heart is the goal of salvation. Now listen to this. From Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many believers. Now, this is, this is often Paul's talking about just how kind of salvation works its way through. And he says, look, those he foreknew, he predestined to what? He doesn't say to heaven. He doesn't say to the, to the kingdom of God. He says, this is what I have picked to be the result of salvation, that you be conformed to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. In other words, you're changed. That's the goal of salvation. Now, I know that many of you grew up in the church, and the goal of salvation is not to go to hell. The goal of salvation is to have a new heart and to be more like Christ and spend eternity in his presence. Now, I don't want to go to hell, but understand if that's all it is, you're missing the point of what God wants to do in you. He wants to transform you into the image of his son. It's the call of salvation. In uh, Matthew chapter 4, we read this this week in our reading, um, in the calling of the disciples. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now we've talked about this here at church. This is part of our discipleship model. How do we define discipleship at Hillsborough First Baptist Church? We use this phrase, Jesus says, follow me. That's a head decision that we are going to follow Jesus Christ. And then it says, um, and I will make. That implies a change of things that are going to happen. That is a heart issue. I'm going to change and become like Jesus. And I will make you fishers of men. This is something different we're going to do. We, re we refer to that as our, our hands. When we come to Christ, head, heart, hands, the heart part is a change. It's a call to salvation you don't just come and say, follow Jesus and keep doing the same things that you used to do. Jesus says, come follow me and you're going to make some changes in your life. Now, some of you can testify of some major changes that God has made in your life since coming to Jesus Christ. But it's amazing that as we become older and we've been in the church longer and longer, those blind spots keep coming back and the change becomes less of a priority. And I just want to remind us all this morning that change, transformation, is the point of salvation. If God has you here still on this earth, he is not done changing and transforming you into his image. You might still be here, not because you're healthier, you're just spiritually more stubborn. I'm kidding. It's also the hope of evangelism. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. The whole point of transformation is so other people look at you and go, What is going on in that person's life? Now, I don't know about you, but when was the last time somebody came up and just said, Man, uh, you are really different? You're different because of Jesus Christ, this whole church. I, maybe I don't believe in church, but you are different. You think differently, you believe differently, you act differently. You are the light of the world. 
Now, you remember some of you, and, and uh, you remember the little Sunday school song, those of you who don't hide that light under a bushel? Look, I would ask you, is there enough light in your life that hiding it under a bushel is going to make a difference? Man, it's the hope of evangelism that people see Christ in you. We have a blinded heart. We need a resurrected heart. It leads to a transformed heart. So what does a transformed heart look like? Um, I love this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Um, It says this. This is a little um, benediction in Paul's letter to Thessalonica. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is joyful. He will surely do it. And sometimes uh, Paul's prayers sound a lot different than my prayers. What does a transformed heart look like? First of all, uh, it's called. He says, he who calls you is faithful. A transformed heart. God is calling out. He is pursuing you. He is going after you. He is declaring, come, 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 change. he's, He's poking at you. It's a calmed heart. Now may the God of peace, may the God of peace, not chaos, Christians, stop pushing the panic button. If you are surprised by the fact that people don't love Jesus, you didn't read the New Testament. If you are surprised by the fact that people don't love law and and, uh, rules, then you have not read the Bible. None of this should be a surprise. But we worship the God of peace. And I, I would say that the transformed heart is also cherished. It's love. And it doesn't specifically say that in this verse, but just listen again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear how much love is involved in that? God loves you. And I I don't know, some of you grew up in some of the same type of circles I did, and sometimes we just picture God as being angry all the time. That he just wants to zap you or poke you because you keep blowing it. And I just want to remind us all that God loves you with a steadfast, everlasting love. His love is shown to Jonah. I mean, come on. Amos was a contemporary. He could have left Jonah in the sea. Amos, I need you to do something else. Jonah's blown it again. Amos would have been like, all right. But he's still wrestling with Jonah's heart. Why? Because he loves him. And then again, a transformed heart is always changing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Let me ask you this morning, can you honestly say that you've been sanctified completely? I can't. Now, in Christ, in eternity, yes. But in the moment, no. 
I was golfing one day with one of my mentors, and uh, uh, just it's all probably only funny to me, but we weren't playing very well. And uh, he was a pastor, and he turned to me and he said, "Dave, it's easier to walk in the spirit than it is to golf in the spirit." In other words, man, when when it just when things aren't working, when you're in the rough, when you keep hitting the trees, it sure is difficult to keep a right attitude. I'm not fully sanctified yet. Okay, if, if you wanna know if you're fully sanctified, go work on your car engine or build a deck. I, nothing will quickly make me angry than that. Boy, that, that first time that hammer hits your nail, you tell me how sanctified you are. Okay, I, man, it's just amazing what can keep coming up. So what's some application and action? Church, I really do want us to recognize the fact that we are blinded to some things in the way that we view society, in the way that we view the church, in the way that we view other people, and even in the way that we view ourselves. We have some logs in our eyes. And if we could visually see it, we would be embarrassed. Jonah doesn't see it. We read Jonah and we go, come on, Jonah, knock it off. But it's a mirror into our own life. And so I have this challenge for you this morning. I just have three different passages. If you can write these down. You can look them up yourself. Um, many of them are familiar. Here's three different things that I think you could be praying this week. The first one, and some of you probably already know I'm going there, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, anxious thoughts in some translations, I believe. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I just want to, I would challenge you this way. If you're going to pray this, God, search me. God, I, I recognize you know my heart. I want you to test my thoughts and my actions. And I want, I want you to reveal if there's any sin in my life that I'm blinded to. And when you pray that, you have to sit with it for a minute. Don't just move on. Because here's what's going to happen. Something's going to come up in your mind. And you're going, oh, I'm getting distracted in prayer. I better move on. No. Stop. You just ask God to reveal things to you. You think about some person out of it. Why am I thinking about that person? Because there might be something grievous there. So pray Psalm 139. Second, pray Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And those of you who have been around me, you know, I pray, this in, I pray this in so many different situations. This is my, my go-to prayer. And as I was thinking of this idea of a, a blinded heart, a resurrected heart, and a transformed heart, um, what is a good prayer of salvation? I was thinking there's so many, you know, with backs of, of uh, tracks and different things like this. And, and this is from the Old Testament. You say, how's this a prayer of salvation? Just listen to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does Paul say in Romans? 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Trust in God with all your heart. Believe in Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Believe that there's a resurrection there. Believe that there's new life there. Believe that. Trust in that with all your heart. If you believe in the resurrection, then you believe in the resurrection of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, goodness. How many times have you wanted to comment that on Facebook in the last three months? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Pray Psalm 139. Pray Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And then I would go back to that 1 Thessalonian prayer in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now understand, this is Paul's blessing. It's what he's praying on the church, so we personalize it. Now may the God of peace, God, I recognize you as the God of peace. Sanctify you completely. God, be in the process of sanctifying me completely. God, may I experience your whole spirit. Uh, may, May my whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. Will you transform every part of me? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I recognize that you're faithful. And I recognize that you're doing it. Here's the the point. If you pray for transformation, if you look for transformation, it's the very work that God wants to do in you. Now think about what we normally pray about. God, make me feel better. God, make me stronger. God, make me richer. I don't want to pray for patience, but I know I need some. How many times has God heard those prayers? God, transform me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And God is going to say, yes, that's what I want to do. That's what I've been calling you to. That's what I want to do. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the reminders that we uh, face in Jonah. Um, I just want to take a moment and, and just thank you for all the people that have just been working hard to, to try to do a live stream. God, we, we want to get back to church. We want to get back to worship. We want to get back to community. But God, we also recognize that something's going on. Some days it feels like our world is coming apart and God, we just want to, we, we get angry. We get angry at people, we get angry at sin, we get angry at ideas. And God, we just pray as your people, God, mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ that we might be a light in the midst of difficult times, that you might use us for your kingdom come, your will be done. May we trust in you with all of our heart. God, may we not just lean on it, may we get rid of our own understanding. May we immerse ourselves in the word of God that we might think like you, act like you, be your hands and feet to a hurting nation and community and people 
for the glory of God, may your kingdom come right here, we pray. And may it even start in our heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.